Hello, everyone, and welcome back to BSA 21, or welcome for the first time. Um, if you've just joined us, welcome to We Love the Short Story. Uh, we're delighted to have a whole bevy of fantastic short story writers with us for this event. Um, I'm just going to introduce our chair for today, Chris Power. Um, Chris Power's short story collection, Mothers, was longlisted for the Rathbones Folio Prize and shortlisted for Edge Hill Prize. His latest book is the novel, A Lonely Man. Uh, and Chris is also local, so if you ever want to stop him in the street to get him to sign a book, just look for him around in kind of the Richmond Road area. <laughs> I won't give the exact address. Um, <laughs> um, and as, as ever, all authors will be signing after the event, so do please come down and see us in the crypt. I'm going to hand over to Chris. Thank you, Sam. Um, and thanks for having uh, all of us here at this um, first Burley Fisher Festival. It's very, very exciting to be here. Um, and especially exciting to be with these three wonderful debut short story writers. Um, Alice Ash, uh, who's the author of the short story collection Paradise Block, which is currently shortlisted for this year's Edge Hill Prize. Um, she was longlisted for the Galley Beggar Short Story Prize in 2019. Her writings featured in Granter, Refinery 21, the TLS, and Miss Lexia, and she lives in Brighton. Gemma Seltzer is also a London-based writer. Also, not also, because Alice is in Brighton. Um, Gemma Seltzer is a London-based writer. I'm so London-centric. It's so boring, isn't it? It's terrible. A bit further away, sure. Um, her work includes The Guardian's award-winning virtual reality film Songbird, the fictional blog 5AM London, and the online flash fiction series Speak to Strangers. She's written for the BBC, for Radio 3, performed her work at the Venice Biennale, and runs Write and Shine, a program of early morning writing workshops, events, and online courses. Vanessa Onwamezi is a writer and poet, also living in London. She is the winner of the White Review Short Story Prize 2019. Her works appeared in literary and art magazines, including Granta, Freeze, and Prototype. Her debut short story collection, Dark Neighborhood, was published by Fitzcarraldo Editions in October 2021. Um, and these really are three very special short story collections, um, and they are very available to buy downstairs, and I'm sure these guys will be very available to sign them also after the event. Um, while these three stories collections do break the mold in various ways, this event in its format isn't going to break the mold. I'm going to talk to these guys. They are going to read from their work, um, and you guys are going to have a chance to ask questions uh, with this very microphone uh, for like the last 10, 15 minutes of our uh, talk today. Um, but to begin with short stories, um, Alice, would you kick us off with a reading? Yes, certainly will. Um, I'm going to read from my story, Black Dark Hill, um, and it's a story that's inspired by Shirley Jackson and a character that is recurring in a lot of her stories called James Harris. Um, and in turn, Shirley was... Shirley... <laughs> First name terms. Um, she was inspired by a ballad where a woman is lured away from her husband and small child um, and taken away on a giant boat with all kinds of promises of gold and jewels and um, extreme luxury and then inevitably gets taken straight to hell 
as punishment for um, abandoning her wee sprog. Um, so this is a kind of reimagining of it, and I think it's quite a dramatic and intense story, but at the core of it, it's just really about um, building up relationships to be a kind of really exciting, you know, this guy's almost the devil himself. He's so alluring, and um, actually, he might just be quite boring. So, um, Black Dark Hill. Underneath the boat, Argyle's shadow is kicking her legs. Up there, inside the boat, her boy is reading. It's just a pamphlet that he has taken from the hotel, but her boy will not be disturbed. He is basking in the sun, and he looks, he looks luxurious, definitely a god or an imp of some kind. Argyle has diligently taken coupons from the newspaper, put on her dress and the summer gloves to hide her strange fingers. She has shaved and primped and plucked. Her boy has driven them in his car. They have come out to the Lilybank River, our girl and her boy. It's their first holiday together, away from clutter, away from our girl's responsibilities at home, her job, the rent, the cleaning, and the extra tasks that she has to do to earn her place, searching with her dark eyes for little spaces she can live in. Her boy has eaten all the black bread sandwiches, vinegary eggs, and sprigs of window box cress. He has scoffed the boiled sweets that splinter like shards of glass. But our girl doesn't mind. She is amazed at how she can adapt, change her personality, her body, even the hungers that she has, all for her boy. Our girl sees boat after boat, all kinds of couples. They are taking photographs and grinning, sometimes wearing matching t-shirts and hats. A stand beside the Lilybank River is selling cigarettes, long red ice lollies and a large display of wilting licorice, brown sticks impaling the stand. And there are giant sunglasses, the type that incognito celebrities wear, necklaces hanging from the roof, cheap golden medallions. These cast a false glint on the dark river, pirate treasure. Our girl thinks that she might want to buy a pair of sunglasses, or some cigarettes at least, but they have already drifted past the stand, and somehow she knows that she won't be coming back along the Lilybank River. Not today. Our girl fidgets and glances nervously at the black water. Our girl's shadow can see everything. The other shadows are holding onto their boats, hiding themselves in the smooth darkness. There is rubbish in the water, discarded necklaces and sunglasses, strands of slimy licorice melting into the riverbed. Our girl's shadow sees a tangle of old fishing wire. She thinks about trying to moor her boat and clamber up inside, to join her at two pieces and be with her boy, to sliver all over him, whole, but she is worried about letting go for long enough to grab hold of the wire. Argyle's shadow holds on to her boat. Her boy is whistling. He is very relaxed, stretching out his bare feet, his yellow soles and the crabbed toes. His hair is muffed and sticks up in little points, the dimming light making fire inside his curls. Argyle's shadow can feel her real self up inside the boat. She is shifting, trying to talk to her boy while she rows. The river ends at a waterfall where they're supposed to turn the boat around, come back the way they came. Our girl can already see the black, dark hill in the distance, where the water plummets downwards. It is only a small waterfall, a natural waterfall, so there is nothing there, no mechanism, no shadow underneath. There is nothing that waits to pull them in, wanting to grind their thin bodies around and around forever. Our girl irons a crease in her dress with her gloved fist. Some black grime has made a V on the airy pink fabric. Her boy hadn't wanted to stop to release her dress, trapped in the car door and she had worried about flinging it open while they were moving. He had spread, sped through the little veiny roads towards the Lilybank River, 
away from Argyle's other life, where she drops coins clattering into the till, cleans the same blank windows with a solution called POW. Now her boy is sleepy, drowsy, having arrived at the river, secured Argyle in the boat. Plenty of time for all that later, he says, pointing at his watch, miming to Argyle like she is a child. Argyle looks at her boy's feet again and imagines gently splitting the slight webs between his toes with her tongue. Thank you, Alice. Right. <laughs> Thank you. As you wrote about there, about those, those veiny roads, you've, you've driven away from where this, this collection, all the stories in this collection are kind of centered. It's called Paradise Block, which is an actual building in the world you create. Can you describe Paradise Block and its inhabitants for us? Yeah, so in, well, Paradise Block in my head is, um, there's a few towards the far end of Brighton where Portslade kicks off. There's some just dilapidated old sort of B&B. So I wasn't really imagining a vast tower block as such, more a kind of place that may have once been sort of quite nice and luxurious and just has grown more and more grotty as time carries on. Um, and I think the way I imagined it was always the stories were the actual flats themselves because that inhabitants are all quite, quite separated and the walls sort of felt like the boundaries that they just were struggling to cross in other ways as well. Um, so I think the, the building reflects a lot of the themes in the book of separation and anxiety and the kind of feeling where you really, really want and need other people, but at the same time, it's a lot easier to live in your head. So the various ways you can get yourself out of reaching out to others. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'd like to come back to that, that sense of living in, in your head and living in, in the, the so-called real world um, in a little bit. Gemma, oh, yeah. water first, <laughs> then reading, please. Thank you. Thanks, Chris, and it's great to be here. Thanks, everyone, for coming along. Um, just uh, my book's ways of living, uh, just by way of introduction, I was just going to say that um, my grandpa was a ventriloquist. He was a variety hall ventriloquist in the 30s and 40s, and he carried that skill all the way through his life. Um, and I remember um, when I used to go and visit, there was a, um, an old suitcase on top of his um, wardrobe, and I used to lie in bed in the spare room of my grandpa's house and look at that wardrobe um, and that suitcase on top of it and will those ventriloquist dummies and shaggy dog puppets and crazy little puppets inside, I used to will them not to come down and get me um, <laughs> as I was sleeping in the bed. Um, so I feel like ventriloquism has uh, started then, has continued as an obsession in my adult life. Um, so I blame him for that. Um, and so I'm going to share the second story in my collection, which is called Other Esther. It's about a young woman and her sister who happens to be a ventriloquist dummy. Um, I'm going to uh, read from the middle of the story when Esther and other Esther, or Esther has stolen other Esther from their father, Raphael, um, and we see them set up a new life together in a travel lodge in King's Cross. So. It's easier to leave the travel lodge with other Esther now, as she's comfortable enough on Esther's hip. If someone approaches, Esther says her friend is shy. At the supermarket entrance one day, Esther hears a siren and starts to worry that she has a disease that makes her heart pummel so often and so hard. She doesn't, of course, but you understand her thinking. 
Other Esther is in the trolley seat at the front, her legs hanging in the gaps. They pick up fruit in packages, milk cartons and paper plates. Get more crisps, says Other Esther. Fine, Esther replies. Get hobnobs and Haribo. Get some lemons for the gin. She lists more things as they pass items in the aisles. It's not easy to care for a ventriloquist dummy. They can't keep quiet and you can't make them. They talk continuously, out loud, and in your head. In the bakery section, fresh crusty baguettes are piled in a basket marked as half price. Raphael, their father, loves this kind of bread. How the soft, powdery smell only takes a moment to work its magic. Esther selects one and takes her phone from her back pocket. What shall I say to him, she asks, her fingers poised above the keypad. Esther and other Esther think through the different ways to tell their father they're okay. But just then, a man around Esther's age with a dark jacket stops and asks if they're making a film. Esther has to think quickly. She's getting good at this. It's as though she's acting a part. Esther glances over her shoulder as if for the crew. Lowering her voice, she says, it's for a documentary. It'll be on Channel 4. Don't tell anyone, she whispers. Cool. Cool, says the man, adjusting his collar so he's smart enough for the screen. What's the story? Esther tells him it's about the search for true love. In the pub, men with stubble and small eyes laugh when Esther orders two bottles of Budweiser and curry meals. It's the first offer listed on the menu, so that's why she's chosen it. But she's surprised her hands are shaking as she passes the £10 note. Girls' night out, she says in her most confident voice, tipping her head towards other Esther, who's in her carry cot. As they wait for their food at the table, Esther smiles at everyone who passes, as though this is some kind of joke. She's plowing through her phone, she's looking at maps, and at Twitter, she's reading messages from her dad. All the time, other Esther sits in her case, head flopping to one side. They're hiding in full sight, really, and it's not like they planned this, but now, here they are, sitting in a pub in Euston Road, living in a travel lodge. It could be worse. Could it? She asks other Esther. What, am I a mind reader? The waitress appears with their food and abandons the two plates without a word. The white rice is piled in a mound and soil-coloured curry sauce has sprigs of fresh coriander. Alcohol loosens Esther's tongue. She finishes her drink and takes the second bottle. They chat and laugh together all about the old days. If Esther's not actually relaxed, she just pretends to be. Her mood lifts. Towards the end of the night, it's other Esther who tugs on Esther's sleeve and says it's time to go. Thank you. Thank you, Gemma. You did something remarkable by there by making a ventriloquist dummy sympathetic. Yeah. Something um, that terrifies me. Absolutely. I don't know how you could have slept in the same room as them. That's respect for that. Um, the Ways of Living is it's, it's, about, it's about women in the city. In this city, it starts, in fact, just down that way in, uh, in Beigelbake on, on Brick Lane. Um, did you set out to write a collection that's so defined by space, or is that something you found happening as the stories began to accumulate? 
Yeah, um, I think I always knew I wanted to write a London book. I, I love the idea that short stories in particular can, can map a location or can kind of show you different sides of, of a place, you know, through just um, having different characters, wandering around different places. So it was always my intention to write about women's experience in the city um, and what's going on on the surface as they're moving through the streets and also kind of what's the undercurrents underneath, kind of... Um, you know, what's, what they're thinking, the fears, the worries, um, and the joy, and everything that's going on. So I knew I wanted to write about women in London, um, but I, I set out really just to, just to walk. Uh, walking's kind of a nice uh, part of my writing practice, so I just took, took some strolls. Um, I wandered around the city, and I was always looking out for um, overheard conversations, uh, memories that rise up, you know, that thing where you're kind of wandering along, and suddenly a memory you haven't thought of for ages is kind of activated when you pass a particular shop or a, a particular smell in particular. Um, so all of these things as I was walking in particular locations, um, I kind of gathered that material together, um, took it back to my desk and kind of reworked and reshaped, reshaped it. And, and now I look at it and I can't remember which bits are real and which bits um, are kind of imagination, but I think that's part of what I'm trying to do about mapping the city, that idea that the reality and the memory uh, and the imagination kind of all uh, play at once together. So, yeah, that's what I would try to do with it. Thank you. Um, Vanessa's now going to take us from London to uh, coastal Spain, I believe. Um, so, the piece I'm going to read is called Cuba. Policeman walks towards her, guns swinging from his hips, Cracked stones rolling beneath his feet, head lifted high by some vapors which only he can sense in cold blue air. Moves as if he's standing still and it's the earth that aids him, aids him forward. His uniform is olive green, gun hovers by her open window, a hand on the roof and all is still. The birds hold their breath while she feels the engine vibrating through her seat. Buenos dias, senora, he says. That for cracking coconuts, she says to the gun. He laughs, then a gesture with the hand. Now she stands, leaning against the car warms her thigh. Gray smoke as the engine burns a veil to cloak her mouth and nose while she flirts with tired eyes. Body soaked in this morning sweat, the dew gathered as she passed through border after border on this long drive. He looks at the exhaust, the smoke, oil, he says. Okay, she says. Your name? He leans himself against the car, clink of the gun. Cuba, a lie. True enough to her, Grown up breathing the vapors of a place she's never been, Cuba edging round the fields. Cuba rubbing its legs together from the long grass. Cuba dripping warm from her eyelashes as she steps out of rain late that morning into a hotel in a coastline Spanish town. The hotel is pink all over as the bitten inside of her mouth, as her dark father's radiant bottom lip, as the scar scratching down the back of her mummy's calf, then there's an oil lamp burning, 
a blackened ceiling, the baby's head wet with tears. The hotel was white, says the receptionist, but it wanted to be pink. He smiles, hands her the key card, fifth floor. Behind him, another receptionist shuffles quiet feet, trying to catch a mosquito in the jar. Coño, his mouth not so quiet. I don't like to kill. She loops her bag handles over her arm, slips down to her elbow along hairs wet with rain. The arm aches under the weight. Smoking on the terrace, she ignores the Englishman sitting easy with tall glass in hand, legs outstretched like a grassy bank rolling into sand into a cold sea. The terrace is framed by hotel room windows set into the flesh of the walls, meekly dressed in grayed netting. The terrace wants a pool or a fountain, something to draw the eye. Any noise echoes from the walls like the click ripple of a stone into water. His glass finds its way to her table, the sound of metal dragging over the tiles, and he says, cigarette? She doesn't answer, but looks up into his red-stained eyes and hands him the one in her mouth. Can't get enough of this sunshine he inhales. Her ear starts ringing and she's deafened on one side for a moment, views his mouth slightly parted, dumbly, cracked fingernails, hair falls wiry around his ears and nearly to his shoulders, sips his beer, foam gathers to a drop of milk and hangs from his bottom lip. He's young from the way he talks, but looking as if each year has doubled up on his face, his back hunched like stem of yellow flower drooping. He's been here a while, he says to her, looking out for himself, left the business he started under the care of a friend. He lies. She can taste it. He touches her arm too many times. The cigarette smoke reminds her of the car and the two dogs she saw hanging from a tree by the road. Excuses. Makes her excuses and leaves. In her room, Mummy is sitting on the edge of the bed holding an unlit cigarette, staring at the wall. She was never a smoker. When will you let me go, she says. She's been moving things around. On the table in the corner, white plastic cups of water in a circle. Cuba walks over to look at her own warped face, eye, half mouth, chin. She scours online for a job and a new place to stay. 6th of May, agency staff required, and a number to call. Thank you, Vanessa. I introduced some unintended tension there by saying it's set in coastal Spain, and then you present it, you introduced it as being called Cuba. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you probably spend the first minute going, this guy's an idiot. What's yeah. he talking about? Anyway, it's my uh, cross to bear. Um, so, short stories are sometimes described as, as existing in this space between, um, between poetry and, and the novel. Um, which I often find to be a sort of spurious definition. But in your case, I think it might hold some water at least because you are a poet 
and your, your work is very lyrical and, and can be described as poetic. But I'm interested in knowing, for you, in your practice, you know, do you see those two things as, as very different, or do they, do they bleed into one another or inform one another? Um, yeah, absolutely, they bleed into one another. I think I tend not to be able, if I'm working on a big prose project, I suppose, like when I was working on this collection, at a certain point, I didn't really write that much poetry. I think it just all kind of melded into one. So, yeah, there's definitely, uh, I think it depends on the kind of um, writer you are. It's more of a spectrum, I suppose, than it is a, a kind of, um, than there is a set boundary between these, these two things. Like, there's a, like, in, at a certain level, like, music and poetry meld into one another if you, if you go to, you know, far enough to one end. So... I suppose, uh, I suppose that um, I never really ask myself the question when I'm actually working. It's something perhaps that you can think about in retrospect. Um, ultimately, ultimately, of course, it doesn't really matter um, uh, because I suppose if we think about it hard enough, there's hardly any difference between music and poetry and prose anyway when it comes to the level of feeling. I suppose. So it all comes from there, doesn't it, really? Yeah, I think that's well said. Um, well, something else that's, that's very fluid in that same way is I think the sense or the relationship in all three books between, between reality and something deeper and stranger and maybe more fantastical. Um, I was thinking about the way these stories, uh, these collections operate, and it made me think of... Um, Flannery O'Connor and something she wrote in her essay on the Southern grotesque. Um, I'm just going to quote a section from it here and I want to ask you some questions relating to it. She wrote, I think that every writer, when they speak of their own approach to fiction, hopes to show that in some crucial and deep sense they are a realist. And for some of us, for whom the ordinary aspects of daily life prove to be of no great fictional interest, this is very difficult. So she goes on to argue that she finds reality mysterious and therefore you know the weirdness of her fiction is a reflection albeit a distorted one of this this sort of mysteriousness which she sees in reality so it is her version of, of realism if you like um, and I think that sort of chime with me in relation to all these books to Gemma to start with you um, you know some of these stories are I, I would say, are realist. You have a great, like, ultra-realist 2020 line that your last story in the book starts with. It's mid-morning and Ricky is in her bedroom crying during a Zoom meeting. <laughs> which I think we can... Uh, <laughs> I, really, I really related to that. Um, but elsewhere, things get a lot, a lot weirder. There's a, there's a story in which a woman's mother appears in her pocket, miniaturised, um, and another where friendship becomes a, a contractual affair. Um, are these methods of approaching things about reality that you found were best expressed through non-realist means, or is that, is that beside the point? You're not really interested in, in whether something's realist or not really. Um, such a good question. Um, yeah, I, I like treading that line, actually. So, you, yeah, I love that quote. That idea that uh, things are very real uh, on the surface, 
but underneath there's all kinds of things going on. And we will never know what other people are thinking and feeling uh, as they move around uh, in their lives. So I think I'm very aware of being somewhere on that line and then sometimes I skip off, you know, for example, the, yeah, the Zoom meetings and the, the crying, uh, this kind of cult of criers that come together. I kind of skip off into uh, sort of fantasy and imagination and at other times the first story is set in Bagel Bake on Brick Lane, so it's very grounded in that, um, that reality there. So I like being able to, to move between it. I think, I think the way, why it works for me is because I'm interested in how, how women walk in the city, that's kind of the, the theme of the book. Um, I like the idea that um, the way they're feeling manifests itself in strange ways. So what's happening on the surface is one thing, but um, underneath they're feeling, they're feeling all the feelings and so they might do something bold and unexpected and surprising um, in the same way that um, you, uh, you might turn a corner when you're walking in London or something and something you're in a really different kind of place, a different kind of atmosphere um, so you know that physically will happen and in my stories that kind of uh, imaginatively happens so the characters might you know, stumble across a ventriloquist dummy or you know, hide in a cupboard or something, they'll, it'll kind of um, they'll express these frustrations or feelings um, through something that is, begins in reality but kind of moves off into um, imagination and uh, unexpected things. Yeah. Yeah. I think, Alice, that, similarly to that, the world of Paradise Block, I'd say it has a, a foot or a, or a webbed toe, perhaps, in, in, <laughs> in reality, and, and a foot outside it. You know, we begin with a girl in her bedroom listening to Robbie Williams, um, but throughout the collection, there's this sense that the world is sort of, the world we're, we're exploring is sort of set askew to the one that's, that's you know, outside the, the doors there. Um, kind of in the way that, that horror fiction sort of establishes reality and then punctures it with, with something, um, something unreal. Did you always envision the stories having this kind of mix? And is that a difficult sort of balance to strike? How much unreality you can, you can allow in? Um. I'm not sure if I deliberately tried to stray from reality. I think my perspective is quite naturally odd. <laughs> and, uh, um, yeah, so when I started writing, I had no idea that it was so far um, one way. But, yeah, I totally agree with what Gemma was saying about that kind of idea of subjective reality and never knowing what's beneath the surface. And I think because the characters in the story are quite isolated, I do feel like loneliness really does breed this kind of strange fantasy um, world that you can live in and become quite estranged from reality quite quickly. Um, and I think that's what a lot of my characters tend to go through. Um, yeah, and I, I thought a lot about the sort of lies that we all tell ourselves to survive and the image of ourselves that we build up in our minds to alleviate guilt or things that we've, we're not happy with that we've done throughout our lives. And I think one major point of inspiration came from, I've, I've worked in like heaps of pubs um, throughout my 20s. And I always found that like around nine o'clock when people were starting to get really pissed, they'd all, like the locals would all start sort of letting their narratives out, like their stories of their lives. And they'd always sort of be quite repeated and, um, very firmly one direction, this is what I've done and this is how I was wronged and yeah, it just made me think about how you can rewrite your whole reality and, and how closely some people have to sort of cling to it to survive. So 
yeah. <laughs> Almost like a ritualistic sort yeah, of uh, yeah. aspect to it. Yeah. And is that, is there, I'm also interested in the way in the stories you, you sort of use um, designations like uh, the daughter or the, or the mum. Is that sort of, to, to, is that sort of about archetypes or is that about distancing or where, where does that come from? Um, I think in, yeah, I think it was distancing in some of the stories. In the one I just read from, I think I was trying to sort of emulate a kind of, um, I really wanted to like juxtapose the scene and how lovely it was in the boat and this, make this kind of like, almost like a 1950s sort of vibe, like, oh, a lovely, pleasant day out with our girl and her boy, and then have it clash with what happens later in the story. Um, but yeah, it's quite fashionable now, isn't it, to take away the identity of, of the characters with that kind of step to remove um, their names. But yeah, I think it's a, it's a distancing device and it kind of makes you feel a bit more chilly and alienated from, from them. Or, yeah. Mm. Yeah, well, that story gets progressively more, more chilly, more <laughs> chilly as it goes on. Um, Vanessa, there's a really like, exciting freedom in your work. Like, as a reader, I've read uh, your collection a couple of times, and even the second time, moving from page to page and line to line, you're never quite sure what's coming next, um, you know, because you, you shift between the everyday and the, you know, like in, in Cuba you have someone sort of, you know, applying for a, for a cleaning job in a hotel. And then the next minute there's, you run up against the hallucinogenic or the rapturous. Um, as an author, how does that work for you? Like, do you, do you map out a story and then, and then sort of adjust your, your, you know, tweak your graphic equalizer of, uh, of reality and non-reality accordingly? Or is it a much more sort of intuitive in the moment sort of process for you where the story takes you? Yeah, it's definitely the latter. It's kind of, <clears throat> I think I'll usually have uh, at least quite soon after I started, I'll have an idea of where it's going to end. So I'll usually have the last line in my head, or at least an image of the ending in my head. It, usually if I don't, it doesn't really work. It kind of lacks momentum. But um, yeah, it is uh, very intuitive, basically. I don't really, um, I don't uh, plan a story or map anything out or even really know what's going to happen. Like it's uh, usually it's just getting to the end is the, <laughs> is the goal, and sometimes that takes longer than others. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, like um, Alice and Gemma are saying, I think, uh, especially in that story, Cuba. Um, actually, it really chimed with me what you just said, Alice, because it. Uh, that story started um, when I was watching a documentary, and it was about a, a town uh, on the coast, like kind of like a, where there's a ho holiday resort, and uh, somebody who owned a bar there had talked about how people come there and kind of lie about who they are. And it was really interesting. Um, that really sparked off uh, something. And usually within a few days, you kind of, I kind of have a sense of the whole story, like of, of it in its wholeness. I know it's there somewhere. And it feels more like you're kind of groping around for it, if that makes sense. Like I have, so almost like you have a torch. This is really, probably going to be a really crap analogy, sorry. <laughs> but like, like you have a torch and you 
can only see what's just in front of you, basically. And you know, they, I know vaguely where the ending is, but, but that's kind of what writing is like for me. Like, I get a couple of sentences down, and I feel lucky by the end of the day. That, that's the goal, I think. So at least you've got a torch. I've got way less than <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> candle, maybe a candle, even. Um, Vanessa, I was at the launch of your book uh, a couple of weeks ago, and you spoke briefly about the, the journey that the reader makes from, from first story to last, from, from the dark neighborhood to at the heart of things, um, and the sort of link, the arc, you know, between those. Um, and I'd like you to expand on that in a moment, but first I wanted to ask um, Alice and then Gemma, um, you know, when you had this, this thing that appeared to be a collection of stories, did, was, it, was it obvious, you know, the sequence you wanted it to flow in? Was there a lot of, like, playing around with that mixtape style? How did, you, how did you like and work with that process? It was so stressful <laughs> um, because of the interlinking. And I was so, like, I kept thinking, oh, should I change this into a novel? Or, like, but the, you know, when there were only sort of five or six stories and they all seemed to be, like, themed in the same direction. Because a lot of your characters recur and events will be yeah. mentioned in one story that are then touched exactly. upon another. Yeah, so it was kind of making the stories live in their own worlds um, and, you know, be feasible by themselves, but then also having this thread running through, which... Um, I, I'm glad I did because I got a real kick out of it in the end, so it was worth it. But it took a lot of just jostling and um, yeah, making sure the sequence was right and that the characters weren't recurring. Just like, hey, it's me from earlier, which yeah, <laughs> I think it's <laughs> hard to make it feel natural. But I really liked the idea of like the subjectivity of the stories being completely disproved, like a little bit later down the line, like. One of the characters, um, Min, is in the first story and she's very bossy and cold and not very nice and then later on she gets unpacked a bit and I, I really liked that kind of lying sort of element to it as well. Yeah, yeah it, gives us real, it gives a real scope to it as well, you know, it makes it, makes it not to bash my, uh, or blow my realism horn again, it gives <laughs> it that, that real, you know, textured reality. Um, Gemma, how about you? I and mean, your book is, is a book of journeys in, in many ways. Is there a sort of overarching journey that you want the reader to take, or could they just dip in and out? Could they read these stories in any order, or would that deeply upset you? You can read them in any order. But I think I spent as much time ordering them as I did writing the short stories, because I'm really interested in the way that the form of, the form of a story and the content interlink. So the idea of a collection of 10 stories there's a potential for balance there, so I really wanted to get that balance. Um, I think because I write in different forms, um, with the short story collection, I had the, the form, the whole arc of it in mind. So I write flash fiction, and I think flash fiction is like um, a glimpse or a moment. You're trying to grasp a moment and hold it up to the light and show people. Uh, that's a flash fiction. And I also write novels, interested in novels, and I think they're, you know, they're longer, there's more scope you can wander around in there. You can spend a lot of time in one corner and then, you know, dash off and go and see something else. You've got more space to wander around. But in my head, I think of short stories as sort of a question. I think I often start, my starting point is often a question, like, 
or, or like a what-if scenario. So what if everybody had to stop talking? That was one of the, the questions. Or what if um, the person you love most in the world was a ventriloquist dummy? So what if, you know, the what-if question um, is at the heart, is it one question, I think, at the heart of each of the stories. So when I was putting them together, I think that's what I had in mind, that how did the questions relate to each other? Maybe they left, um, you know, they uh, opened up another question that the second story might answer. The first story is about two, um, two friends who, and one of them um, steals something from the other, steals something. Uh, and then the second story is also about a theft, but it's a different kind of angle on it. So I kind of tried to link, link them all together. So one, one would raise a question, the other would answer it, and then we keep going through um, the story. So they're interlinked sort of in the way that yours are, but just not the same characters. Some of the same questions uh, mm. are rising up. And how about you, Vanessa? So dark neighborhood uh, at the heart of things. Is that, is that, you know, a function of, well, I've got to order them, so I'm going <laughs> to you know, thread them in, in this specific reason that works for me? Or is it, is it you know, sort of a, a key component of the collection that, it, that, it, that the stories occur in the order they do? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. Like I, to be honest, so at my launch, I did uh, kind of, reveal that the order of the stories was in part, so basically the first story, Dark Neighborhood, where lots of people were kind of um, waiting in this big queue. <laughs> it's, it's more interesting than it sounds. <laughs> but, um, we all love queuing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, love queuing, so it's fun. Um, but, uh, in that one, what I said at the launch is that in this one, in the first story, I have the sense that, that a lot of people are kind of, they're, they're in that phase, the kind of lying phase where you believe the story that you've, you're really living inside the story that you've told yourself, um, living inside the story of who you are. And, um, and what I'd said was that they're looking for the part of themselves that knows. Um, and by the end, the last character, uh, the character in At the Heart of Things, is at the point where she rediscovers the part of herself that knows. So in that sense, yes, there is an order. And in part, I did that, I, I put it in that order in a way because I had to order it. It's, it's interesting, I, didn't re I hadn't thought about it when I was writing the stories. Um, I finished Dark Neighborhood last. Um, but when it came to thinking about ordering them, that's how I decided to do it. And I had expected uh, to have an editorial conversation where my agent or um, Fitzgerald were like, let's talk about the order. We think it sh we should do this, but actually that didn't happen. We kept the order. So I was like, oh, okay, you know, it, that's how it ended up, basically. Should there have been editorial intervention? I don't think no. it should. It works. Tomorrow, it works. I think, I think happy. You did it right. She was happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was all right. Um, Alice, um, I think we've got. I'm just going to check. My, I'm not checking football results. I am checking the time. Um, in about five minutes, I'm going to I'm going to cede control to uh, to you guys. Um, so aside from the location that gives the book its name, and as you spoke about this sort of like interlocking, interleaving structure where characters will recur. I noticed um, 
some like, some more what struck me as more sort of symbolic connections between the stories. And I know some writers get very nervous when people mention like symbolism. I remember uh, Claire Keegan saying once, "There's no, there's zero symbolism in any of my stories." There's a cow in one, that feels quite symbolic. Um, but I know that these things are sort of, you know, that readers can bring, which is part yeah. of the, the, you know, excitement and, and joy of short stories. They sort of invite interpretation, I think, um, in quite an explicit way. But I did want to ask you about color, which does seem to be very prominent in the, in the book. You've got these white fingers biscuits, which have this nightmarish aura to me. White fingers biscuits, uh, Mr. Cornflower, the nearby town of Plum Regis, um, and the recurrence as well of, of pink. There seems to be a lot of pink. Um, can you talk about this element of the book and whether whether you're you are codifying these colours to sort of represent certain things in the narratives? Um, yes, I can. <laughs> um, so I think with the the white and the white cats and the white fingers, I was thinking a lot about light and dark and how we're sort of taught to feel like dark is something very frightening and white has more positive um, undertones in, throughout culture. Um, and how white can be, is very, very frightening as well in itself. It's kind of the dark where things can hide, um, but the light where you've got nowhere to hide. So I was trying to use darkness as well as light um, in equal measures. And then with the pinky thing, um, that's the character in um, the story I just read, is kind of, an, I'm trying to sort of riff on um, the James Harris character that Shirley Jackson uses, and he was always wearing a blue suit, and sometimes he's not named, but you just see him in the blue suit. And I was just so enticed by that idea of um, just this like disruptor, sort of wandering around in a pink dress, doing like whatever she wants and causing trouble. Um, because especially a lot of the women in the book have, have huge burdens to carry and are quite downtrodden in various ways. And I think Pinky's like my answer to that. <laughs> yeah, she just like messes stuff up a bit and has a good time. Um, she does mess stuff up. Yeah, for causes sure. some carnage. <laughs> <laughs> um, Gemma, your story, um, Get Away From Earth A While, which I really loved. Um, you've got a character, Andy, who spends an afternoon up a tree in Crystal Palace Park. Um, and it reminded me of Grace Paley's story, Faith in a Tree. Um, and of course, Paley's another writer who wrote a lot about women navigating the city, in her case, New York. Um, is, she, is she one of the, the mothers of, of your book? Is she? Yes, she is. <laughs> Grace Paley is my favourite, so that's such a that's amazing that you made that link. Yeah, um, one of the things I love about um, Grace Paley is just um, her her voices. She's a real writer of voices. You can open one of her stories, and that character, those characters' voices just jump out at you. They're they're vivid and they're bold and they're characterful, um, and she gives voice to figures um, that otherwise might not, you know, that you don't see in fiction very much. I mean, she was writing a lot in the 60s, well, late 50s, 60s, 70s, and voices of women in particular she writes of, and um, children's voices, um, voices of uh, new immigrants to the country. And for me, that, that power, when you can get it right, like Grace Paley can, you, you foster a kind of empathy in the reader, which I think is so 
powerful, or is it quite, you know, can be quite rare, just this idea that you can hear a voice, you can hear another experience, um, and, un you know, get under the skin, and as a, a reader, um, she offers us that. Um, and she also, she also, I mean, I've got so much to say about Grace Paley, but, um, you know, that story in particular, it's about a woman kind of at a crossroads trying to decide um, what to do about something in her life, and um, sometimes, um, taking, you can take action in unexpected ways. So this character, instead of making an actual decision, <laughs> climbs the tree and spends time in that tree to, to contemplate um, what to do. And I think um, something Grace Paley does that I, I love to borrow or, you know, uh, lean on is um, kind of using the, the immediate surroundings, using the life as you have it, you know, um, to, to, um, to bounce off or to answer your questions or to explore. So. Yeah, Grace Paley's characters often um, exist in their tenement blocks or on the streets of New York, uh, and mine are, yeah, mine are in London, in Crystal Palace Park, just using the stuff around them, using the people they see, the trees that they might explore, um, to find answers. I mean, that's what we're all doing, aren't we? Looking for the answers to our, our questions. So I like the idea that she, she maps um, and uses the city as... Um, kind of a witness to people's experience as a friend, um, and they're in constant conversation. So, yeah, I've taken, taken a lot. Yeah. Well, I love the way your stories are in, in conversation with, with hers, and that, you know, that, again, is one of the, the pleasures I find in both writing and reading short stories, the way they, they kind of echo and, and relate to, to what's come before. Um, last one from me before, before you guys can ask some questions. Um, Vanessa, there's something very distinctive about the way you set your words on the page, including interesting sort of spacing between words sometimes. Can you describe that or explain or uh, expound on that sort of for those formal decisions? Um, yeah, I mean, it started, um, I think maybe I started it experimenting with the spacing on the page um, after I read, well, I guess, a few things converged. I read Ellie Williams' Atrib and Other Stories from Influx Press, um, which is a brilliant short story collection. And um, after that, um, yeah, I just uh, realized that there was more I could do, I suppose, with the typography. Um, and I suppose there's also an oral quality. There's quite an oral quality to my stories. Like, I do like reading them out, and I think um, there's a, they have a different uh, feel when they're read out. Um, and like n a few years ago, I, I used to work in a theater, and I saw a show there where the um, director, it, the play was a, a View from a Bridge, so quite a well-known play, but the director had kind of broken up the dialogue such that, um, not all the time, some of the dialogue, such that the, the characters left really strange gaps between certain words, um, uh, like a, just a, you know, like a half second or a second longer than is natural. And it had a really profound effect on me. It was uh, very, very powerful. Um, and I really, I'm very attracted to that kind of strangeness that is uh, kind of, that it brought out in what was, I suppose, a very, it is a very well-known text. Um, yeah, I think there's something, uh, again, it is intuitive, like I don't really, there's no real philosophical 
kind of uh, method to where I put a gap, but it is something to do with the way it sounds. Like in uh, the last story at the heart of things, there's a, for example, there's a line where she says, uh, for old time's sake then. But I really just prefer it uh, when she said, uh, with her saying, for old time's sake then. Like it, it just, for some reason, I just much prefer it that way. So I put the gap there. And that's more or less it. I don't think too hard about it, to be honest. <laughs> I feel like I've given a different answer every time I've <laughs> been asked that question. This is, the best still, one, right? this is the best one. This is the best. It's getting truer every time. <laughs> but um, yeah, there, there's like there's just such a convergence of many things. There's a visual thing, there's an oral thing, um, and an intuitive thing as well. Well, I think, it obviously, I've given up the microphone, but I refuse to be silenced. So, uh, <laughs> I think it, it, invites you to, um, it invites you to think about them as, as oral pieces as well and to sort of read yeah. them out, even if you're just doing it sort of silent in your head but rather than just scanning the words. So I think that's a, it's a powerful um, impact. But now, um, any questions from the audience for yeah, these guys? Oh. Sorry, everyone. I'm really, but I was terribly too scared to ask now. <laughs> there we go. A brave question, ask her. <laughs> this is a question for Vanessa. Given your oral and in, uh, intuitive and visual thing, uh, Alice Munro is notorious for uh, rewriting her already published stories. Do you expect? to do that yourself when you listen to your stories and would like them to be spaced differently? Um, in that sense, yeah, yes, I, I'm rewrite In terms of, I suppose, the oral quality, I'm rewriting them all the time. When I perform them, yeah, like I sometimes just ignore the gap that I put there. <laughs> Like I insisted with there only <laughs> five months ago. Sometimes I read straight over it. Um, and uh, I don't know that I'll go back. I mean, who knows? I don't know that I'll go back and rewrite them um, to be stories. But I imagine I'll probably go back and um, pull words out of them. I do intend to record them myself and do some kind of sound experimentation with them. So they will kind of they will, uh, their life will continue, probably in another form, though. I don't think I'll rewrite them as short stories. Thank you, though. That's a great question. Well, I think just in the last couple of minutes, it's worth Gemma and Alice coming in on that as well. Like, when you read your stories, Gemma, do they, do you, I'm, I'm constantly, like, re-editing, even though I'm just doing it and, you know, annotating my own book. I mean, quite I have a pencil up on stage <laughs> now, ready to go. So they so, don't, yeah. they're, never, they're never quite finished? I mean, I love that idea, though. I mean, they're finished in the kind of biggest sense. I mean, I feel like when I'm writing, it's a bit like sculpture, and you, you know, a bit like the torch thing. You sort of keep going until you see the finished item. So I do feel they're finished, but a word here and there, and it makes you feel reconnected with it. You, start, you enter the story again, you make a slight shift, you change a word, and you're kind of in it, and you're, you'll claim it as a writer again. So I'm all for that, yeah. That's a great way of putting it. And Alice? Yeah, I'd say definitely. I came back to this story because my book came out in February, so I haven't looked at it for a wee while. 
and I was like, what is this mad grammar? <laughs> like, this whole first paragraph is, like, completely crazy. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I could change the stories forever and ever and ever. And I always used to sort of, like, I'd say, I'd send them out to magazines and... Um, that's it, they're finished, and then you'd get a rejection and be like, oh no, it's not finished, <laughs> again. <laughs> so, yeah, they're always opening up again in that sense. Well, you're not finished. That editor's finished for rejection. <laughs> um, we are finished. Um, it just leaves me to thank uh, Alice Ash, Gemma Seltzer, Vanessa Omomazy. Thank you for coming. Thanks to these guys. Thank you for everyone organizing this today, and um, enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you. Okay.